You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Amen. Well, thank you. You can take your seats. And while you're uh, doing that, get your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 today. And for those of you who are a little bit nervous about whatever happened to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, fear not. We're getting back to that next week, uh, diving in. But uh, the Lord laid this passage on my heart, and the elders have given me a permission to go ahead and take this week as a, a one-off message from uh, Psalm 73. And I trust that as it's been a great challenge to me, uh, this Psalm will be a great challenge to you. Before we dive into it, though, uh, some questions we should probably ask ourselves, and one of them is, do you ever feel like quitting uh, in your place at work? Do you ever feel like, I've had enough? Uh, I'm not doing this anymore. I just feel like I'm going to quit. Or uh, maybe it's, it's uh, in your home, and it's like, I just there's too much turmoil. There's too much frustration. Uh, maybe it's in a relationship with a friend, and it's just like, I've had enough. I quit. I can't do this anymore. And you start being, see, I'm sorry for yourself, and you're still so self-serving in what's going on. Or, or maybe it's in your spiritual walk, and it's just like, this is not what I signed up for. I thought, you know, when I asked Jesus into my heart, I was going to have a three-car garage and a pool in the backyard, and everything was going to be fine, and there was going to be no struggle, and it's just been difficult, and I think I want to quit. Well, I take courage because we're going to be introduced to someone who went through many of those very same feelings. Um, His name is Asaph. And uh, Asaph was a writer of the number of the Psalms that we have. And uh, this Psalm we want to take a look at today is really his testimony. Um, What do we know about him? We don't know a lot about him uh, from the scriptures, but to just listen as I read from 1 Chronicles 16, uh, starting at verse 4, it says, Then he appointed, that was David, then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, another guy named Jael, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Eam, and another guy named Jael. It's kind of like the name Chris around our church, right? They just had a bunch of those guys. And who were to play harps and lyres, Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So if I was to try to put this into what was his role, what was his job, who was he, I would say Asaph was the first vertical church band leader. That's probably the best way for us to understand that in our context. He was, he was a church band, vertical church band, circa 1042 BC. In this psalm, he gives us his story. This is his testimony. And what you're going to see in his testimony is Asaph is every one of us in this room. Uh, The things that he wrestled through, the things that he struggled with, the pressures that he was under, he represents every single person in the room. So as you're looking around wondering if is the pastor just speaking to me today, well, no, the pastor's already been spoken to by this psalm. And then you are too because Asaph, he's like all of us. But I love this psalm because of the honesty that he gives, the way that he portrays and shows himself and the way God was working in his heart. And I, I pray with the honesty 
that he was willing to share, you would have that same honesty, willingness in your heart to listen to what God wants to say to you today. And uh, so it's Psalm 73. God, my strength when life is hard. Here's the first thing. When life is hard, I don't forget God's goodness. So this psalm starts out by saying, only God is good to Israel. Or truly God is good to Israel. So let's hear the psalm. Why don't you stand with me as I read it uh, for you, Psalm 73. And um, just, just think about your testimony when you hear his testimony. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs unto death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I had been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works." You can take your seats. As he shares his testimony, he starts out with this point, when life is hard, I don't forget God's goodness. We're gonna spend a bit of time in this verse and then walk our way through the rest of the psalm. Uh, but he's giving his testimony. Not, not unlike if you were asked to give a testimony or we were doing a, a God at work uh, story about your life and, and it would be because God has done something and you've kind of come out the other end and you're in a, a better place than you were. And, and if you were giving your testimony or sitting in my office, you'd say, you know what? The Lord's been good to me. I'm just thankful for what the Lord has done. And then you would go on and you would tell me the story. And you'd tell me about the depth you went through, the struggle you went through and how hard it was and how deceived you felt or how hurt you were and, and then you would get to the place of but God and it's like all of a sudden it got turned around when I got my eyes fixed on the Lord and tell me what God has been doing in your life and the way it's worked out and you'd finish with a statement of rejoicing in what God did. So that's his testimony. 
That's what he does in Psalm 73. And it's what we want to hear and see in our own lives as we consider how we look, as we uh, compare ourselves to Asaph and see what God did in his life. And so the first point, though, is that statement of God. Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He has his right mind now as he writes this testimony, but it wasn't always like that. And so now he looks back and he says, truly, God is good. God is good to his people. And when our hearts are right, we don't have a hard time looking back and seeing that. But my question for you is, how much time do you spend going back and remembering and rehearsing and being thankful for the goodness of God in your life? As you see Asaph and you see his his struggle, and you see the pain that he goes through, you need to remember this is his testimony. He's writing it out. He's through the other end, and he's going back, and it's like, if I'd only remembered how good God is, if I'd only remembered how faithful God is, and that's what he rehearses for us out of verse 1. I wrote down five kind of key ideas that uh, might help you to think about God's goodness in your life that maybe he thought about in his life. And the first one is that God is good to us in quantity. God is good to us in quantity. And he would have thought about Joseph and, and how his brother sold him off and how he went down into Egypt and all that he went through with a Potiphar's wife and all the rest of it, about how God was good. He would have thought about how God was good in the deliverance from Egypt. He would have thought of how God was good in taking them to the promised land and the giants and Jericho and over and over and over and over and over and over again. God was good to them in the quantity of things that God has been good to him. And how about you? Think about the quantity of times that God has been faithful in your life and how good he is to you. God is good in quantity. The next thing maybe he thought about was that God was good in quality and the lessons that God taught his people. God is good to Israel. Now think about the quality of the lessons. We studied the uh, Ten Commandments a year or so ago and just the absolute gold that those Ten Commandments are. Uh, nine of them repeated in the New Testament for us and, and, and the quality of that. The Judeo-Christian ethic built on the Ten Commandments, all the rest. God teaches quality lessons. Uh, what about the uh, story of Abraham and wanting his son? We talked about this over Easter, and, and God says to Abraham, I want your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. And he takes his son, and they go up onto the mountain, and, and they're getting ready, and he has the knife to kill his son. And then God provides the lamb. I, I said a week or so, I can't even imagine sacrificing my son. I can't imagine, on my worst day with him, I could never imagine what God asked Abraham to do. And yet God provides the lamb. What an amazing, what an amazing lesson for Abraham of God's provision and God's care and the quality of that lesson. Now I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Isaac never went on a trip with his dad ever again after that, but, but the lesson was for Abraham and, and what he learned in that and the quality of that lesson. Uh, what about the quality of the lesson of Caleb and Joshua? They're going to go in and spy out the land uh, with 10 other guys and the 12 of them come back and, and 10 of them go, we can't go in, we can't go in, we can't go in. And Caleb and Joshua, no, we can go in. God's going to deliver us. God's going to give us the land and they wouldn't go and therefore they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, but the quality of what God was teaching about obedience and doing what he says. And what about David and Nathan after David sinned with Bathsheba? 
and Uriah is put to death on David's order. And then Nathan tells him that story. Remember the story of uh, the rich farmer who a guy drops by, they're going to have a barbecue. And so the rich farmer looks around at his own flock and then he sees the poor farmer and the one little lamb and he takes that little lamb and he sacrifices that little lamb and the indignation and the injustice that's building up in David. And David's like, that man should be put to death for what he does. And Nathan points his bony finger at David and says, you're that man. The quality and the brokenness that it brought in David in Psalm 51 is his cry out to the Lord and his restoration to God. And the New Testament says that David was a man after a God's own heart quality. God teaches quantity of lessons. God teaches quality. I don't forget God's goodness and the way God works in variety. That's the third thing, the variety of what God's. At times, God delivered his people. Sometimes he delivered them. But other times, God delivered them over to their enemies because they needed to learn a lesson. They had to come under. They needed to get it straight. And so sometimes God would deliver them from the enemy. Other times, God would deliver them over to their enemies. Sometimes God fed them. At times, God led them. God shut the mouths of lions. God caused the sun to stand still. God took 300 men and and defeated the Amalekites. God did not always do what they wanted, but he always did what they needed. And that's true in your life. God doesn't always do what you want, but God always does what you need. And as the psalmist looks back and rehearses God's goodness, he would have seen God is good in variety. Two more. He would have seen how God was good in the security. I talked about Joseph and his brothers and Potiphar's wife and in prison and at the end of the day, how God preserved the nation through all of that. And uh, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because God was taking care of the security of the people. There's the picture of the Red Sea and and, uh, going through the ocean. Then there's the picture of Jericho and the walls falling down. There's the the picture later on, but of the three men in the fire and, and captivity and how God keeps his people secure. And you can look in your own life and see how God has taken care of you and his protection for you. But the reality is the security that we have in Christ Jesus and the hope we have because of the finished work of Christ. See, as Asaph looked back, he saw that God kept them in security. And then one more, and that's the duration of God's keeping. God is good to us in duration. The wilderness the wandering around for 40 years, the judges 12 times in this cycle. If I was the Lord, I'd have given up on those people. But God never gives up on his people. There's temptation for us in our lives to give up on one another. But God never gives up on us. Sometimes I'm working with somebody and you're struggling. Are they ever going to get it? Are they ever going to get it? Do I keep pouring into this person? At what point do you say, enough? And yet God never says enough for you because God is good in duration. So the psalmist is now starting to get it figured out. He's come back to a place of what God has done. And so he starts out his testimony for us to hear today. He starts out with God is good. And we need to reflect on God's goodness. And we need to remember. And we are so prone when we come to prayer to dive right into maybe maybe confession. And maybe I need to get this right with the Lord. And, and then so prone to dive into we need this and this and this and this and this. And they might even be right and righteous things. But we forget to give God the glory. We forget to thank him. We forget to remember. We forget to stop and go, God is good. Hey, church, think about God's goodness to you in your salvation. 
That's where we've been all over the last couple weeks as we've come to Easter and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And if you can't come up with a list of a hundred things of God's goodness and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you go back to that one thing. You go back to the day when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and God poured his goodness out on you when you deserve nothing and he gave you eternal life. If you've got nothing else to be thankful for as a follower of Christ, you've got that to be thankful for. That's our hope. That's our desire. That's what should wake you up when you wake up in the morning. That should be what puts the wind in your sails to get out the door and I'm gonna live for the Lord today. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you're here today and you're like, What's, what is that about? That's our hope. Most of the people in this room have, have made a profession of faith where they've said, I'm trusting Jesus Christ for my salvation. I've tried everything else. I tried to work hard. I tried to do this. I've tried other paths. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they put their trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make them better people. It just makes them saved people. And if you're today and you've never trusted Christ, that's why Christ came. That's why he died on a cross. That's why he rose again, so he could pay the price that you couldn't pay for your sin. And the Bible says you don't have to earn it. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift that comes from God. And all you can do, all you can do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so when you stand before God, the answer to why should I let you into my heaven is because of what Jesus did for me. Because I've trusted Christ for my salvation. God is good. And if you've never trusted Christ, you can believe on the Lord Jesus today and you can be saved and you can understand God's goodness in a whole new way as he's worked in your life. When life is hard, I don't forget God's goodness. Now that's verse one. And then we dive into the rest of the psalm, kind of flying through it, but here we go. When life is hard, I don't lose focus. When life is hard, I don't lose focus. You see, some of the next verses are the dangers of losing focus. I see what happens to him. So in verse two, but as for me, but as for me. So he, this is where he's at now. God is good, but he goes, but you need to now hear my story. But as for me, this is what I was going through. This is how hard it was. And he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's like, I just about packed it all in. I just about gave it all up. Well, what happened? What happened to you, Asaph? Well, look at verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He started looking around him and in his struggle, He's a follower of God. He's desiring to live for God. And as he looks around, he sees all of these people and they seem to be having it easy. Their life seems to be simple. And he's like, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I wanted. I didn't want a difficult life. I didn't want it to be hard. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's sitting there going, good guys finish last. Here I am. I want to live for the Lord. But there's prosperity of the wicked. And so he looked around just like we do. He looked around and he saw the wicked getting ahead, quote unquote, as it were. He saw them getting the good job. He saw them getting the promotion. He saw them having the big house. He saw them with the pool in their backyard. He saw their families and how their kids were all signing up for all the sports. And his kids couldn't sign up for all those sports. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he looked around and was like, that's not right. That's not fair. 
It shouldn't be like that. I should have this stuff. After all, I love God. Why don't, why don't I get all of those things? And he looked at the world. He looked at around him. He saw the pleasure of sin. He said, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covered them in garments. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. He looks all around. He sees all of these people getting ahead. He sees the pleasure of sin. Why don't I get to have that? Why don't I get to have that? Maybe you think like that. Maybe that's where you are today. And you've lost focus of who God is and you've lost focus of God's goodness and you keep looking around you and you keep seeing all of these things and all these people getting ahead and you look at sin and it's enticing to you and you want it and so often you fall to it. Why? Because sin is filled with pleasure. Don't let anybody ever tell you that sin's not filled with pleasure. It is. That's why we struggle with it. We wouldn't, if it wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't struggle with it. We struggle with it because there's pleasure. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. There is going to be a correction. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be a making right of all of these things. But as, this, as the psalmist is telling us his story, he's looking around. He goes, man, my life stinks. I, 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 I'm supposed to be living for God. And, and yet all of these people around me, they all, the grass is so green for them. They have it made. And I, quite frankly, I want what they've got. Look at verses 8 and 9. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. The arrogance of the world, the way they talk, the way the world talks about our Savior Jesus Christ is a cuss word. You use the name Jesus and you get reamed out for it all over the place. The world uses the name Jesus as a cuss word and nobody cares. If I hear one more person say, oh my God, I might come right out of my skin. But that's what the world does. They have no respect for the Lord. They have no respect for God. They, they cuss out our Lord. They cuss out our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's looking at all these things and he goes, it's just not right. It's just not fair. I don't think it should be like that. But they go even further and they say, how can God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? There is no God. There is no God. That's our world. That's what the world wants to espouse. Why? Because if they don't espouse that, they have to deal with the fact there is a God and there is going to be justice and there is going to be an accounting and there is going to be. So you have to deny the very fact that God even exists and you see it all over the place. You see it pushed out through the teaching in our world. You see it pushed out through the atheism. You see it pushed out through pluralism. You, you see it pushed out through, um, well, it's just all over the place. There is no God. God is dead. And the psalmist is at like the low place in his life. He's watching this and he's seeing this and it's like, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. And maybe that's where you are. 
Maybe that's the journey you have found yourself in as you uh, consider what uh, your life is like right now and this danger of losing the focus and, and you've not looked into the skies and seen God in his handiwork and you've stopped reading the word of God and you've stopped focusing on Christ and his work and you're not spending time in God's word anymore. And you begin to doubt. You begin to doubt. Does that look like you? Am I describing some of the things you're struggling with today? But you're like, you know, I'm not supposed to feel like this. It's not supposed to be like this. Well, look, look what he does. Because he hasn't got it fixed yet. He's in verse 13. He's like, all in vain, I, there's the big problem. These next verses have a bunch of eyes in them. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's going through this struggle. He's going through this pain. He's going through this pressure. And what is he trying to do? I'll try and clean myself up. I'll try and make it look good for people. I've tried that. He says, I tried that and it doesn't work. And then he comes to, here's where the transition happens for him. And this is where desire comes from a right focus. And take a look at desire comes from a right focus in verses 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I am so tired of seeing the world getting ahead. I'm so tired of why do they get all the breaks and I don't get the breaks. I am so tired. One of the greatest verses in the Bible is verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. See that? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. So my question for you today is, when was the last time you went to the sanctuary of God? When was the last time? Like, well, we're in church for Pete's sake, Pastor. I'm here today. Not the sanctuary of God. You can come to church every day, every Sunday. You can come every week and never enter the sanctuary of God. Your heart is wrong, your passion's wrong, your eyes aren't fixed on Christ, and you can go through the motions, and mom and dad made me come, or I come because my wife wants me to go, and if I just go to church, she won't bug me about it all week long, and, and it's like, check, 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 but you never go to the sanctuary of God. You never listen to what God is saying. You never desire to be close to him until I went and I met with God. Because when you stop and meet with God, then you get it and you can figure it out and you can understand the struggle you face and yet what God has for you. Well, how do I go to the sanctuary of God? Well, obviously, as a follower of Christ, the sanctuary of God for us begins with that, that relationship with Jesus Christ that I talked about earlier. That's where it begins. That's where our hope is found. That's where our trust is found. But, you know, each of us, and we all go through a journey in these things. We're not always on fire, ready to go, 100%. Let's go, woo, for Jesus. We struggle sometimes along the way. It's called sanctification. It's called growing up in Christ. It's a bumpy road for sure, but I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm not even yet what I should be. That's that whole picture of what sanctification is like for the believer. It's growing up in Christ. It doesn't save you. It's what happens because you are saved. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, and so you have these times in your life. It might be a dry season. It might be a difficult time. You might have got a report from the doctor or lost your job, or you have to move and didn't think that was going to happen, and all of a sudden it seems like your world is caving in around you. And, and do you do what Asaph does? 
and try and fix it on your own? Or do you go to the Lord? Do you, go, do you fall on your face before him in prayer? Are you crying out, God, you have to deliver here. You need to come through because, God, I don't know what to do. And you find yourself on your face before the Lord in prayer. Or you find yourself just in the word of God. And, God, I'm waiting. You speak. I'm going to keep reading until you speak to me. And I'm not giving up until you do. Do you find yourself hanging out with people who are going to help you and spur you on to love and good deeds? You get in a small group and you become accountable to people and you allow them to speak truth in your life. And, and, and it's like, see, some of you can remember the days when it was like that. And it's like, you couldn't wait to have your devotions. You loved to go to the Lord. Being with other Christians who would hold you accountable, that was an amazing time in your life. Because you wanted what God wanted for you. But lately, not so much. Lately, it's, I kind of like what the world has. I kind of like what they've got. And, and I want more of that. And your journey with the Lord has been a struggle. He says in the end of verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, he goes, and then I got it. I discerned their end. I understood that what they have is for now, and it's fun, and it's pleasurable, and it's what they want, but there's going to be a judgment, there's going to be a separation, there's going to be a hell, and there's going to be a heaven, and depending on what we've done with Jesus Christ, he got it, and all of a sudden, his focus starts to change as he uh, comes to a right focus. Look at verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He's like, I don't, I don't want to be like those people in those earlier verses. Because the end for them is not going to be good. I don't want what they have. I don't desire those things anymore. Now skip down to verse 23. When you find yourself in the hard place. Verse 23 is an amazing verse. It says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Hey, follower of Christ. Does the Lord feel a long way away today? The last couple of weeks have been tough, and it's like, where's the Lord? Here's my question for you. Who moved? Who moved? You, you stop being engaged with other believers. You stop reading the word. You stop being accountable. And, but that text is a great text. It says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And I would say to you today, if God feels like he's a long way away, I'd ask you who moved. And I would say, this turn around. He's like right there. That relationship's ready to be restored right now. God says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You may go wandering off on your silly little paths. I do it. You do it. But I'm never going to leave you. He goes on and says, um, I hold you by your right hand. I love that. He says right in verse 23, you hold me by my right hand. Okay, so for all the left-handed people in the room, your life is just hard. But us right-handed people, God holds me by that hand. That's my strong hand. That's the dominant. I don't want any letters from left-handed people this week. Okay, just, just being funny. The right hand. God holds me by that right hand. He's not letting go of me. If God feels like he's a long way off, when did you move? It didn't happen in one day. 
It happened in a choice of a bunch of little things that you made decisions along the way, things you decided to not focus on anymore that you should be focused on, focusing on things you shouldn't be focused on. And slowly, slowly, little by little, the Lord seemed like he is a long way away from you. And here's what God says, nevertheless, nevertheless, regardless of whatever you did, I am continually with you. That's an awesome truth. That's a great hope. And that's how do we get this right so we can be back in that relationship with the Lord. And nevertheless, I am continually with you. You're always with me. You're always with me. You know, the slippage into that place is usually slow and long and made up of many decisions. I I always say we're only three decisions away from a disaster in our spiritual walk. And that's true. But it's not one decision. It's a bunch of little decisions that get us there. But the place of correction happens in a hurry. It happens through repentance. It happens from turning. I've got to stop this. It's so ridiculous that I'd be looking at the world thinking how wonderful that is. When the Lord Jesus Christ has offered to me eternal life, I'm going to be with him forever in heaven, worshiping with him for his glory. And you're like, oh man, I wish I had that stuff. It's like, stop it. And the correction piece is a turning in repentance and it happens in a hurry and it happens in a big step. It's like, I am not doing this anymore. It doesn't honor the Lord. I need to be right with God. That's what I'm going for. Verse 24 says, you guide me with your counsel. And look at that. And afterward, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. Not a bigger paycheck, not a bigger house, not a bigger stuff on this side. I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus who paid the price so I could have eternal life. I get to spend eternity with him, worshiping him. I'm going to heaven. That's what he says. Is that your focus? Do you have a focus ever that says, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to live on this side understanding that that side is going to be so awesome. You guide me with your counsel, the counsel of the word, the counsel of the indwelling spirit that we have in Jesus Christ, the counsel of good Christians who give us good, godly wisdom. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you receive me to glory. And then look at this next verse. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I always found that, uh, that first question, who do I have in heaven but you? For me, theologically, that's an easy question to answer. It's like, duh, who else do we have in heaven but God, right? And so I get that part of it, but is that where my focus is? The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who do I have in heaven but you? I honestly don't struggle very much with the first half of the verse. My struggle is with the second half of the verse. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. that's my battle every day. That's your battle every day. I mean, the the psalmist, that was his battle. He's looking around. He's seeing how they're getting ahead. He's seeing the stuff they've got. He's seeing how they curse God and nothing seems to happen. But now he's at the point of, and there's nothing on this earth that I desire beside you. Can you say that? I can't say it perfectly. I'm desiring to grow in it. If God took it all away from you like he did with Job, would you still give God the glory? 
If you lost your family, if you lost your job, if you lost your home, if you lost your friends, if you lost your, would you still give God the glory? Now, you don't have to have the strength for that today because God will give you the grace when you need the grace, right? That's his promise. My grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't give it to you in advance. And whatever God would allow you to go through, he'll give you the grace to go through it. But would you be willing to let those things go? I've told you the story. I didn't use this in the other messages about when Sue uh, had her accident and she had blood clots go into her lung and it's like, am I going to lose my wife? Right? You've heard me tell that story. And I was on the, I don't know how I'm going to do it, Lord, but I'm going to give you the glory. And God preserved her and saved her and all that. And it was an amazing story of God's goodness. And more than anything else, Lord, more than anything else today, what I want is to be right with you. Nothing I desire comes before you. Not a relationship, not a job, not a home, not a nothing. Nothing comes before you. Well, here's a, the next thing. When life is hard, I trust God's design. When life is hard, I trust God's design. I look at verses um, 26 and 27. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Man, he's got a different perspective now, right? Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. He's now got his eyes fixed in the right place. But go back to verse 26. If you've been around this church for any length of time, you know this is my life verse. This is my life verse. You can't have it as your life verse. My life verse. You can share it. You can read it. You can appreciate it. But it's my life verse. My flesh and my heart, they fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And very quickly, I want you to see two things in this. The two things I want you to see is the frailty of your flesh. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail. When Satan attacks, when Satan works in your life, when Satan is, he starts on the outside and he works to the inside. He starts with the outside. He starts with what you see. He starts with what you taste and touch and smell and all of those senses. And Satan starts on the outside and he works to the inside. My flesh fails and my heart. We get all messed up from the things we see around us. We get our eyes off of God's word and we get our eyes on other things and we, my flesh fails. And then my heart fails and it's like, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I, I don't like this anymore. It's not how it should be. My flesh fails and my heart. But God, that's the next part of it. And so the first part is the frailty of the flesh. The next one is the flourishing of our faith. It's, but God, but God is the strength of my heart. And when you get your eyes fixed on him and on his working and what he's promised for you, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Awesome. But here's what I was taught as a kid. I was taught as a kid, you fix up the outside first. You get the outside fixed up and, you know. And so as a little kid, as an eight-year-old kid, I'd put my suit on every week. I was as cute as a little thing. Put my little suit on. I have a tie on. Have my black shoes on, which we had to polish every Saturday. And, and, and I put Brill Cream in my hair. If you're under 40, you don't even know what Brill Cream is probably. But I put Brill Cream in my hair because, because we had to look right to go to church. We had to have that external thing all fixed. 
And I'm sure God was in heaven so many times going, oh my word, what are they doing? See, because Satan works from the outside to the inside, we think sometimes we have to do the same thing. We work from the outside to the inside. And to the point of it would be like, you know, you wanted to come to Christ, you, you clean up your act first and then come to Christ. So wrong. So untrue and so ungodly. I love this verse because it says, but God is the strength of my heart. And that's where God does his work. And that's the work God wants to do in your life today. It's not an external work. It'll become an external work, but it doesn't start on the outside. It doesn't come with who can I impress? How can we make ourselves look good? It comes from get your heart with, right, with God right. Allow him to do that work. And the external things, he'll take care of that down the road. God doesn't care about the outside things until you take care of the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's our struggle. But God, he's looking at your heart. There are people who could walk in the door of this church. Some street guy from downtown Toronto brings his cart, pushes it up to the front door and walk. And we'd be like, what's that guy doing here? He needs a right heart. Doesn't need clean clothes. We can do that for him. He needs a right heart. And the guy could pull up in a Mercedes and park at the front door and we go, oh, we want that guy to come to our church. God wants his heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. So you come to church and you look good every week and God's looking at your heart. When life is hard, I trust God's design, and God's design is to start with your heart. You get your heart right with the Lord in salvation and then in obedience, and you watch what God will do. Here's the very last thing. When life is hard, I will not give up. When life is hard, I will not give up. Look at the change that's happened in him now. So, so he just said, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's an amazing transition from what he was saying back 10 verses ago. And now we come to, but for me, it's good to be near God. I love that. He says, but for me. He didn't say, but for us. He says, but for me. He goes, this is my decision. Regardless of anybody else does, I'm going to follow the Lord. Regardless of whether my friends do, regardless of whether my family does, regardless of whether our church does, regardless of it doesn't matter, as for me, but as for me, it's good to be near God. It's good to be near God. I have a desire to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. He is my hiding place. He is my dwelling place. He is my place of safety. I won't worry what man can do to me because anything man can do to me is only temporal. I'm going to be under God's care. I'm going to be under the shadow of his wing. And then he's like, that I may tell of all of your works. See, see at the beginning of this passage, he's like, woe is me. My life is hard. I don't want to, uh, now he's like, God on the throne, him first. In every story I tell, I want to tell of his works. So are you more today like Asaph was when he was down in the pits and he wasn't going anywhere with the Lord? Or are you at that place of, um, I want to tell of all of his works. And you work the Lord into your conversations through the week because you're so thankful for what God has done. You see, Asaph is every one of us. We've all struggled just like he struggled. And yet he went to the sanctuary of God. He understood God was with him. 
He put his hope and trust in the God who loved him. He understood his failures. And he goes, and I want everybody to know how awesome God is for me. Well, God, my strength when life is hard was Asaph's story. God, my strength when life is hard has it's been my story. God, my strength when life is hard is your story. And where are you in the journey of that kind of a testimony? Which really brings us to the so what. The so what is, what is your journey? What is your battle? What are you wrestling with? Are your eyes fixed on family or work or friendships or health or the future? Is your, is your eyes set on everything else except the sanctuary of God? When I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood. He had to come to a place of brokenness. He had to come to a place of confession. He had to come to a place of turning, and he did And look what the Lord did in his life. And God will do that for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is your word. This is the story of Asaph. He was a worship leader. He was a writer of songs. He was a man that you loved and you cared for just like you care for us. And yet, Lord, with integrity and honesty, he told us his story so that we could see the depths we can fall to, but we could also see the restoration that is ours and is available. Father, the reality of that in our salvation, the reality of that in our walk with you, if we confess our sin, our taking our eyes off of you, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all and all kinds of unrighteousness. Stir in our hearts today, God. Give us a willingness to respond that we would be the people of God who declare all of your works because you are on the throne. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.